0: My name is Matt Moses, and I have the privilege of reading today 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture...
1: Well good morning, Good morning. it is good to see you, good to be with you today, good to hear you sing and lift up uh, God's name in praise and worship this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors at Disciples Church and we are so glad uh, that you decided to join us today. Turn in your Bibles if you would, if you're not already there, to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't know to what extent you've had opportunity to, to travel overseas in your life. Some of you uh, may not have had that opportunity. Others of you have certainly traveled a whole lot more than I have, but uh, there's a consistent experience that I've had each time that I've been overseas. I was reminded of this this week because it was 12 years ago and 11 years ago um, this week that we went to Italy. Uh, we went twice, two years in a row, and had the opportunity to spend a couple of weeks there working with some churches and uh, leading vacation Bible schools and working with some of the local children um, in English classes really all of it just an opportunity to present the gospel and and the the consistent experience that I've had there uh, overseas is this. You you get a taste of local culture. You, You have all of these unique experiences. In our case, it was dining on canals in Venice and driving through the hills of Tuscany. We walked through the Colosseum. We viewed pieces of art that I'd only ever seen in art books and and, and viewed the Sistine Chapel in person. But the interesting thing about traveling outside of the country is that for as fun or as beautiful or amazing or incredible as the sights are, you never really lose sight of the fact that you're a foreigner. You're the one who's out of your normal place. And we really started to feel that toward the end of that trip. I remember, I don't remember which trip it was, but I remember in particular towards the end of the trip, going into a shop and a shop owner heard Jessica and I talking and called us over and in very broken English asked where I was from, to which I responded, the United States. To which she rolled her eyes and said, I know that, but where in the United States are you from? It's a little bit of European condescension that we could all probably do without, right? I mean, how am I to know that you can hear the difference between an American accent and a British accent, an Australian accent, but. Shortly thereafter, we went to a restaurant, and the suggestion of our host, uh, it was recommended to us as being the best and most authentic Italian meal in this particular region of Italy. And so after our host had ordered on our behalf, we discovered that the protein that was going to be served uh, with our pasta wasn't sausage and it wasn't meatballs, but it was horse meat. And I don't know that I've ever been prouder to be an American <laughs> than in that particular moment. And for as much as we enjoyed every minute of that trip and we really did there was something so comforting when the plane finally arrived home in Milwaukee and we drove by a Culver's and a cops and got a cheeseburger and had familiar surroundings and familiar people and familiar sights to see we felt a sense a sense of belonging that couldn't be replicated really anywhere else and as we look at first peter The indication that we get from the Apostle as he writes to us is that for the Christian, the gospel not only provides our sense of identity, but it also provides a sense of belonging. There's a familiarity in the truest sense of that word. And so we're in this series where we've been looking at the effects of the gospel on the Christian life. First, talking about what is the gospel? Who is it for? What is the freedom that it brings? And now we're on our third of three weeks where we've been talking about what is it that we're free to? Free to be still, free to rest, free to spend time with our Heavenly Father, free to enjoy and to use the spiritual gifts that He's given each of us within the context of the church. And now, in today's text, free to community. And this is incredibly relevant to us, because if you look around at the the world around us, if you look at what's going on in culture and society more broadly, what you find is that people all around us are desperately seeking for belonging. They want a group with which to identify. They want an identity as part of something bigger than ourselves. And so people seek to find their belonging in their their racial identity or their sexual identity or their gender identity. They're seeking to find it within their politics or within their activism. But for those who know Jesus Christ, there is a true, deep, God-ordained belonging that is far too often taken for granted. I want you to notice first what the foundation is for this new community that that God draws together through the power of the gospel. Uh, And what is that foundation for that community? He gives it to us in verse 4, and here's what it says. A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And what Peter is going to indicate is that the foundation for this new community, for a new people called to God, a new identity, a new sense of belonging one with another, the foundation for all of that is Jesus Christ Himself. As we talked about for the last few weeks, it is is faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that identifies us as Christians. And as we talked about earlier in this series, it is Christ who draws men to himself. We find that same idea here in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. But the idea is this, we don't stumble onto Jesus. We don't even seek him out of our own accord. Apart from his gracious intervention and pursuit of us in our lives, we have no realization that we even need Christ. Christ. I came across a quote this week from Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, where, where it, was, it was taken from his, um, his commentary on Romans, and, and the particular quote that he was referencing is the way that he interacts with people who are scared for whether or not they know Christ. And he had this experience of being an evangelist and a pastor and one of the most well-known Christian leaders of the 20th century, and so frequently as people would come up to him and have conversations, one of the things that they would pose to him is, is Pastor Lloyd-Jones, how... How is it that I can actually know for sure that I'm saved because I have put my faith in Jesus Christ and I believe that he died for my sins and I believe that he is God, but I'm just scared that maybe I've missed something and maybe I actually don't know him. And Lloyd-Jones' response was, the mere fact that you are concerned gives evidence to the fact that God is working and has worked in your life. In other words, without the gracious intervention of God in our lives, we are completely unaware of our need for Him to begin with, let alone capable of pursuing Him in our own power. To the extent that we have a desire for Christ, it is because we're responding to His calling in our life. And all of that is because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now now look how this begins to translate to us practically in verse 4. As you come to Him, that is Jesus Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And that phrase, spiritual house, is full of meaning. It has the idea to it of a temple, the place that people go to experience and encounter God, the place that they go to meet God, particularly in this ancient culture. This would have been a very pronounced thing to say. Because think about the culture in which this is originally being spoken. If you were a faithful Jew at this time, prior to the coming of Christ, and you wanted to experience God, you wanted to know the one true God of the universe, if you wanted to know the Creator, if you wanted to experience His love and encounter Him, where did you have to go? You had to go to the temple. If you were a pagan at this time and you were part of a trade guild, you would have headed over to, to a particular building that was dedicated to a god that interacted with your particular trade in order to have blessing on your career. If you were a couple who was struggling with infertility, you would have gone to the temple of fertility and worshiped the goddess of that place. Well, why? Why do that? Because that's where those gods dwelled. But here, Peter says, uh, says something that is that is absolutely mind-blowing in this culture and in ours for different reasons. But here, Peter says that God dwells in a different sort of temple. We find this in verses 4 through 5, he says this, and I want you to notice the connection. As we come to Him, we are being built up together as a spiritual house. In other words, the natural consequence of coming to Christ is being built together with other believers. That the permanent residence of God himself is within the community of believers. Now that's extraordinary to consider. We take it so for granted, we assume this so much, that we lose the power and the meaning for us in our lives. And while this certainly would have been jarring to ancient religious people, it would have been jarring because of its informality, it would have been jarring because it was so outside of their natural expectations and experience. For us, it is just as jarring, but for a whole different reason. It is jarring for us because what, is, what we're being told in this context is that is that this sort of proper worship necessitates other people. We're a people who love our space. We love our independence. We love our self-sufficiency. We love, love, love our privacy. Especially as it pertains to the issue of religion. The spirit of the age is that religion is to be privatized. You believe whatever you want to believe, but you keep it to yourself, particularly to the extent that I find what you teach as being small-minded or bigoted or, or antiquated in some way or another. But when Peter says we are being built as a spiritual house, what he's saying is there is true purpose and design in this, that God has perfectly and intentionally chosen you, that he has ideally placed you, that he has intentionally surrounded you with others for the purpose of your flourishing and the strength of the spiritual house. He has fit you together with other believers for interdependent living. And just like the temple, the spiritual house that is made up of the community of believers is in a very real sense the place that people come to encounter God. That God reveals himself in a unique and special way through the tapestry of his people, through our different experiences, through our different backgrounds, our gifts and our personalities, that people encounter God through the gospel that we proclaim and the lives that we live together. And the Bible frequently uses this language that refers to the church collectively, not just the individual, to accomplish this task. In other words, to quote one theologian, a brick sitting in a field is not a building. And you, isolated, alone, independent in your faith, as real as your faith and trust in God may be, you experiencing that faith and And exercising that faith and worshiping God independent of other believers is not living up to what God has actually called you to do. You cannot function the way that God intended you to function if you try to live the Christian life in isolation. And when we say that, we don't just mean attending a service together on a Sunday morning. We're talking about intentional, vulnerable, relational community. Well, where do you get that from Scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked. Certainly, there's a whole lot of illustrations that speak to this idea. The Bible uses the picture here of the church as a, as a building. In other places, it's referred to as a flock. In other places, it's referred to as a body interdependent and connected. But I want to point you to a few Scripture passages that necessitate this understanding of the church. The first one is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And notice what it says. Brothers, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How does that necessitate community? Well, how do you know if someone is caught up in sin? How would you even be in a position to know if someone is caught up in sin, apart from relationship with them? And to what exactly are you called to restore them? If there is no community and no interdependent relationship and no being known by other people, to what is this individual supposed to be restored? The answer to both those things is intimate relationship. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And the natural question that follows is, well, who, to whom am I supposed to confess my sins? Do I confess my sins to just anybody? Do I confess my sins to anybody who's a Christian? No. The ability to confess your sins to one another presumes an intimate, real, deep relationship. Or 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So understand what he's saying. He's saying in life before Christ, we indulged in sin. We were devoid of a relationship with God. We lived, as it were, in darkness. But then he paints this opposite picture. And he says the opposite of that is walking in the light of Jesus Christ and in fellowship with one another. Are you beginning to see the high priority that God places on this. Who knows you? Who's in a position to see your life closely enough that they get insight into what you're thinking or your behavior or your actions or your heart when it doesn't align with Scripture? Who has earned the right to say something to you about it? And if the answer in your life is no one, then you have a 1 John 1, 7 problem. We're claiming to walk in the light, but we don't have the fellowship that is intended to accompany it. So here's the point. To be born again is not intended to lead you into an individualized spiritual existence. You are born again into a new spiritual family. And so the diagnostic question for you is this, are you so spiritually, emotionally, relationally plugged into other people's lives that if you stepped out, there would be something missing? Are you so engaged in the lives of other believers, even if that's a small group of believers, are you so engaged that if you were to step out, your absence would be missed, your presence rather would be missed? And what effect does this loving community ultimately work into our lives? We find the answer in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, and he says this in verse 22, the glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, that is, my people, the church, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me, the effect of encountering God in this way and engaging in a depth of community and relationship with one another is so profound that it reflects the relationship of the triune Godhead. Do you see that in the high priestly prayer? That Jesus' expectation and hope and prayer for the church is that a unity so defines them that it is reflective of His unity with the Father. And when the world sees that unity, they know that Jesus is actually God according to this prayer and that, that God loves people like them. When you begin to see people who otherwise have no reason to interact, begin to know each other and love each other and serve each other, you take note. So the temple, this spiritual house that God is building, exists to point everyone to Jesus' finished work and sacrificial love. So what sort of community does that loving interdependence develop in the church? And we find the answer in verse 9. I want you to notice, by the way, that this is actually how God views us. It's his perspective of his people collectively, and a charge to us individually as members of that people. Here's what he says in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And with the time we have left, we want to look at these briefly. We're going to look at two of them together, and the two we're going to look at first are these. You are a chosen race and a holy nation. Now note the language that he uses here. He doesn't say you're great and that's why you're chosen. He's not saying that you're so good that God couldn't pass you up. He's saying you've been chosen by no merit of your own and you have been brought into a new race so that we could say with the Apostle Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ because how can I boast in something that I didn't do? The blood of the Savior has made you a chosen race and a holy nation. Literally, this phrase that's used, uh, a holy nation, literally translated means a new or unique ethnicity. The word translated nation in your Bible is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our word, ethnicity. And that's significant for a whole lot of reasons. First, this, this letter of Peter's is written to a diverse group of churches throughout the Middle East and Europe and, and Northern Africa. This is written during the rule of the Roman Empire. All of a sudden, you have all of these people groups from all over this corner of the world who used to have nothing in common and no real interaction other than, that, than perhaps that of war and occasional trade, now living in closer quarters, interacting with one another, having closer relationships, and there was all kinds of conflict on every front. You had people coming in with diverse religious opinions and political opinions, all forced under this new paradigm of the Roman Empire, and you had people groups who inherently didn't like each other, who'd had long standing feuds with each other, now finding themselves as part of the same nation. And within that, then you had the church. This explosion of the gospel across this whole corner of the world. As people hear the name Jesus Christ and begin to put their trust and faith with him and show up to worship only to realize that people who they hated and despised and had all different opinions from were showing up at the same place to worship the same God with them. But despite all of the conflict that was going around, the early recordings of how the church interacted were very different. Not that they were perfect and not that there weren't disagreements, but you had Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free and people from all walks of life somehow managing to gather together to lift up and worship God. Why? Because they had now been given a unique and distinct culture, something that surpassed their previous identity, a new ethnicity. So we think about that within our our local context, and we certainly, in this country, we have a broad culture, and within that, we have a whole bunch of subcultures. It's fairly pronounced, certainly, in our our corner of the country. I mean, here in Wisconsin, we've got a unique culture. We've got beer, and we've got brats, and we've got cheese, and we've got all the things that make our state amazing. And then we've got, within that, a unique sports culture, right? Like, you go to other places and and other states and there may not be as unique of an identity built around sports. Around here though, if you have just a little bit of sports knowledge, you can make a relationship work with just about anybody else from Wisconsin. Because even if you don't follow football closely, all you have to know is that there's the prospect of Aaron Rodgers signing a four-year, $200 million deal to start a conversation with another sports fan, and you can fake it even if it's just for a little while. And even if you didn't know that that was happening, and I suppose it's possible that you didn't, even if you didn't know that that was happening, here's the one thing that we all know we hate Chicago sports. You just start there, right? We can all, we can all agree on that. We can all agree that nothing good comes from Chicago. <laughs> well, what potentially changes that relationship? A new culture. So jumping back to Italy again 10-12 years ago, I remember walking through a particular marketplace and and someone had called out and stopped us because they heard us speaking. They called us over and they asked where we were from. I could very clearly tell that they were from America, by the way. I didn't need that clarification, but I had asked, uh, we began this conversation with them. They asked where in the United States we were from and it turns out they were from Chicago. And here we are from Milwaukee. And it turns out that as soon as you cross international boundaries, you have a lot more in common with folks from Chicago. Because all of a sudden we're talking about all these things we have in common. There's all of these uh, common opinions and all these common experiences. We had a sense of of camaraderie and commonality with someone from Chicago in that that little market in Italy that I did not have with those who were national Italians. See, your Christianity does not just give you a new team to root for. It gives you a whole new unique culture. A lens through which to view every piece of your life. A way to relate to people with whom you otherwise would have nothing in common. And there are all sorts of distinctions and differences that begin to get moved to the back burner in light of our common culture with one another in Christ. Why? Because we have a shared blood bond that is unique. When you share the same race and ethnicity or language with someone, it's it's a much more profound experience to naturally fall into community and relationship with them in countless areas, and that's exactly what happens when we become Christians. We've been given a new race, a new ethnicity, a new culture. And Paul says that when you become a Christian, it's not as if all of the other distinctions begin to fall away, but all of the connections that you have with people who look like and act like and think like you begin to shift a little bit. Your view of those things diminishes because there's something infinitely more profound about who you are in the eyes of God. And Jesus has the unique ability to take people who had hatred towards one another, and he unites them into a new humanity. But notice, Peter doesn't stop there. He says, not only are you a a new nation, not only are you a, a holy people, but then he goes on to say this, you are a royal priesthood. Now, if I'm honest with you, as I was looking at it this week, I realized that this phrase is so loaded with meaning that it could stand alone as its own sermon, but let's just consider a couple brief things about this idea. The most, the most maybe important th- thing that isn't necessarily obvious to us about this is that royalty and priesthood were two stations that were nearly always kept apart. The priests in Israel at this time were to represent the people before God. They were essentially intended to be servants. They were to they were to carry out the, the temple sacrifices. They were to care for the poor and the needy. They were to attend the sick. They were to minister to those those that worshiped God. And royalty didn't do any of that. Royalty stood in a position to, to be above the people, to declare how things were going to be, to make broad declarations. But in Jesus, we have a whole new paradigm for how to understand these roles, because Jesus is the divine king who condescended to be our priest. The king, the creator, the one who who decrees and declares, became our intercessor. And he did so through a life of humility and service. And in doing so, he provides a template now for how we are to care for and interact with one another, namely that in a world that values success and status and accomplishment, Christianity would stand as a counterculture. In Christianity, your status, such as it is, was granted to you. You were adopted into the royal family of God. Your success in Christianity is determined by your service, not your cunning or your business acumen and you claim no accomplishment of your own, claiming instead what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. But now, says Peter, we have been made into a royal priesthood, that God actually views us this way, that in the church of God, made up of the people of God, in which God dwells Himself, we are now free to go to God. We all, everyone who knows Jesus, are priests. He continues and he says, finally, a people for his own possession. And that phrase may be translated in different ways depending on the tra- particular translation of the Bible that you have, but here's, here's another way to think about it, a people whom God values. and that's an important thing for us because our tendency our tendency can be to focus so much on our own fallenness and so much on our own difficulties and so much on our own struggles that we forget how it is that God views us in his perfect sight that when he sees us he views us as forgiven and redeemed and loved and perfect because of Jesus Christ so much so that he finds us valuable I wonder how often we actually stop to think about the, the implications of that. that, God doesn't merely put up with us. He doesn't just make, make it so that things are okay between us, but he actually values us. He views us as his possession, he views us as a prize, he views us as a joy, as the object of his affection and love. A people so valuable that Jesus Christ Himself came to die for us. And Jesus' blood has infinite worth. And yet He pours it out for you and for me and for us. Now, why is all of this done? To what end are all of these things true of us? Verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To make much of this God, to make much of his grace, to make much of his love. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in the forming of a new people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, we have experienced the transcendent in the ordinary. It is a miraculous thing to be able to have a family formed of strangers. And that's exactly what we've been given And I think this whole perspective of identity is so helpful for us, not only recognizing our unique individual identity in Christ, but the identity and the sense of belonging that he's given to us together. Because to an onlooking world, the way that we interact and the way that we care for or love one another, even the way that we disagree with one another, is vitally important. It conveys all kinds of things about our God, it communicates a message. And we can think of famous quotes from famous people, maybe the most famous criticism of Christianity comes from Gandhi, who said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, that sounds pious to us, and certainly we want to strive to reflect our Savior in our lives, but here's what the Mahatma missed in his assessment by necessity, to be a Christian is to admit your inability to live the life that Jesus lived. In other words, as a Christian, my life will often look like someone who needs Jesus because that's exactly what I am. I think the better assessment of the church, the more accurate description of the church, and the the more helpful criticism of the church comes from C. H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon in a sermon given to his congregation in London said this, he said give yourself to the church and remember by the way that when we say church here we're talking about the the people the body of Christ give yourself to the church you that are members of the church have not found it perfect and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect I would have never joined one at all And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Spurgeon continues, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. And so here's our encouragement for you today. Would you take time, not only in this morning but throughout the course of this week, to consider how this calling of God on your life ought lead you to interact with other believers? Has your faith become so privatized and so hidden and so separate and divorced from your relationship with other believers that all of this sounds foreign to your experience? What would it look like to honestly assess how you're doing in internalizing these principles and actually allowing them to drive your life moving forward? Has the description of your Christianity as being part of a chosen race and a new ethnicity led you to value your Christian brothers and sisters and to diligently, lovingly work through differences? Or are you viewing your Christianity as a club to which you belong? A team to root for, but nothing more than that. Has your life begun to imitate the royal priesthood of our Savior where you view success by the upside-down standards of God's kingdom, where service is more important than accomplishment? And perhaps as importantly, are you taking advantage of the familial relationships into which you've been adopted? So who knows you? Who's in a position to recognize if something is off in your life? Who has permission to challenge you on how you're thinking or believing or acting? And if the answer, again, is no one, are you willing to consider that you are not functioning in that spiritual house, brick upon brick, the way that God is constructing and the way that he intended? So here's the invitation. Stop this week and consider who God might have you begin to pursue that relationship with, understanding that this takes time that you don't get together once and instantly become best friends, most likely? What does it look like to open up your home, to get together with someone for coffee or to go out for a meal, and to ask these simple questions that you've heard us share before? What's been going well for you lately? Tell me what's good in your life. What do you have to be thankful for? What can we celebrate together? Secondly, what's been hard for you lately? What's been a challenge? Maybe that's your family, maybe it's your spiritual life, maybe it's your job, maybe it's relationships. What's been difficult for you? And third, how can I be praying for you? And then pray together. And what's beautiful and incredible about that experience is that those questions, when asked sincerely and responded to honestly, can open up a world of relationship that you may never have experienced before. And listen, I understand that there are most likely some, if not many in this room, who are shy or scared or hesitant for whatever reason, either because it's your personality or because you've been hurt in relationships before or because you have a lack of trust for other people, but here's, here's what we're asking and I think we can make this call biblically. Would you be brave? Would you be brave in trusting that God intends this sort of relationship for your good and for your benefit? That he has given you a people to bless you, to walk with you, to love you. And so what we're going to do at this time is close in prayer, And then we're going to go to a time of silence as we have each week. And for those few minutes of silence, what we're asking is that you once again spend time with your Heavenly Father. To enjoy His presence, to consider the way that He views you according to His Word. So that you can faithfully, honestly, obediently respond to what it is that He may be calling you into. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you've given us a body to which to belong. We thank you that you did not save us just to leave us alone and by ourselves to figure things out, but that you intended us to walk arm in arm, brick upon brick with other brothers and sisters in Christ who yes, though imperfect, reveal and prayerfully are relying upon the perfect life of Jesus Christ for their hope and their dependency, trusting that the Holy Spirit will grow them in maturity and in discipleship, one with another. God, help us not to shrink back from these things. Help us not to leave passages like this unchanged, to blow this off as one more thing to do that we'll never get around to doing, but seeing in it something that is infinitely valuable because that's how you view us. And that's how you've intended us to function with one another. So we'll trust you to do in our midst what only you can do and pray, God, that we would be bold and brave in pursuing the things that you've promised are for our good and for our blessing. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.